I might have to apologize ahead of time. I have three kids under the age of five and they might be oh. in the background, so. No worries. I feel like that's par for the course with just about everyone these days. Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in, my name is Sean Belowski and I'm a second year MPP student. Last week we talked about marijuana legalization in Virginia and this week we're gonna talk about another monumental change here in the Commonwealth and that's the fact that Virginia will become the first Southern state to abolish the death penalty. Given the subject and a bit of a content warning, our interview does mention crimes like murder and rape, so if that's something you want to avoid, we completely understand. But legislation has passed both the House of Delegates and the State Senate, and Governor Ralph Northam has said he will sign it when it gets to his desk. This is a big deal. The death penalty is a very dark history in this country, and no state has executed more people in its history than Virginia. The death penalty has somewhat of a complex legislative and judicial story, and it's complex because the debates around the death penalty aren't simply philosophical questions around whether the state should have the power to execute civilians. There certainly are those debates, but then there's the process by which the death penalty has been applied, a process in which race has figured prominently throughout our history. So to talk about this, we're fortunate to have Liliana Segura, who's a journalist at The Intercept. Liliana covers prisons and harsh sentencing, and she is one of the premier journalists covering the death penalty. She was in Terre Haute, Indiana, for all 13 of the federal execution that Donald Trump's administration carried out from July of 2020 to January of this year. And if you're interested in this topic, be sure to check out her work, which we'll link to in the show notes. Our hope for this episode is to provide a history of the death penalty, the issues involved, how Virginia got to this point, and then what could come in the wake of Virginia's abolition. One note of correction on my part, I mentioned during this interview that the U.S. is the only democracy with the death penalty, but it's the only Western democracy with the death penalty, so just keeping myself honest there. I should also note that as part of a Virginia politics class with Professor Pennock, classmate Henry Frost and I spent the fall semester researching the death penalty and wrote an op-ed that ran in the Roanoke Times on January 2nd. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. But without further ado, here's our conversation with Liliana Segura. So Liliana, I really appreciate you you taking the time doing this. And I just wanted to start just kind of curious, how did you come to cover and write about the death penalty? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, it's, well, there's sort of a long version to that story and a shorter one. I'll give you the shorter one. Um, basically, my interest in the death penalty uh, was formed really in college. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't somebody who had grown up with a whole lot of interaction with the criminal justice system. I didn't have, you know, incarcerated loved ones, or I never sort of had reason to really engage very closely with this issue or this system. But um, towards the end of uh, my time in college, I kind of fell in with some anti-death penalty activists who at the time were um, really active in um, raising awareness around some cases, some wrongful convictions out of the state of Illinois. Um, the state of Illinois at the time had a moratorium on, on, the de- on executions uh, and, and a few years later would actually, um, the governor of Illinois would, would commute uh, the entire uh, row. This was like a huge, huge deal. So at the time, Illinois was sort of in the news and there had been some very high profile um, uh, wrongful convictions, exonerations, um, and I w- became sort of capture, captivated by this history that for some reason I had never heard before, which was about what was then sort of an open secret, um, mainly out of the south side of Chicago, uh, where this racist police commander named John Burge had essentially for years um, unchecked, um, sort of established a really brutal um, uh, uh, sort of process of interrogating suspects at various police precincts um, throughout the city, but mainly on on the South side. this, this, uh, these were torture tactics, literally, um, that, that, that John Burge had actually, uh, learned, um, in Vietnam, uh, he would, um, he and his sort of, you know, underlings would, um, brutalize, uh, people who were brought in, uh, to be questioned in, in various crimes. Uh, the vast majority were black, um, or, or Latino, uh, and a number of them ended up going to, uh, ended up confessing to crimes they didn't commit, and, uh, and several of them ended up going to death row, and at the time that I learned about this through activists, um, I, I met some of the, um, 
I met an exoneree from Illinois. I met the mother of a man who had been the victim of one of these, um, you know, uh, torture interrogations. Um, and I started hearing from people uh, who who uh, had experienced this brutality firsthand. And I, it sort of, in this way, kind of radicalized me uh, in the sense of, you know, I didn't understand why I had never read about this uh, in the New York Times or the Washington Post. Like, why wasn't this a national scandal, this incredibly brutal legacy um, of, of this uh, police commander named John Burge? So, I um, ended up sort of getting involved um, with activists uh, and, and, and really, you know, I, I don't hide the fact that my earliest sort of roots um, in relation to this issue uh, were activist informed. Um, and I got to know people sort of from the jump who had been on the receiving end of the system, who had lived through it, who had survived it, who saw their families um, Right, you know, saw their families um, convicted and sentenced to death, and and that um, that was a very formative experience for me. And it 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 it, it took me a while to kind of figure out uh, what I wanted to do with that uh, with that knowledge. Um, but I had always wanted to be a writer. I did want to be a reporter, um, and eventually I was able to sort of you know find a home in journalism that allowed me to tell some of these stories that I had been so. Um, uh, just disturbed and outraged by. So that's kind of the the history. It took me a long time to to become a reporter and do that as my as my day job. I've found that there are there are quite a few instances when you read about death penalty issues that can just cause your jaw to just drop. And I, I think it kind of goes it, it spans the micro the micro to the macro level. And you know, I, I think what I really love about your journalism is that you tell you tell stories that span the micro to the macro. And, and I think what kind of caught me at the macro level is that, and I just truly, I think everyone has probably had an opinion about the death penalty or been asked about it or thought about it in school at some point, but we're the only democracy in the world with the death penalty. And when you look at the, the countries that execute more people than the United States, I mean, it's countries like it's China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, um, Egypt. We don't know how many North Korea are, are, are executing. And it's just, you know, it's it just it kind of spans, you know, the outrage kind of spans uh, the spectrum, so to speak, from micro to macro. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny that you should mention uh a few years ago, I guess, 2016, maybe I had a chance to go to the World Congress Against the Death Penalty, which took place in Oslo. This is a, a global event. This is a, uh, I think it happens every two years. And I was invited to speak alongside some um, really great, you know, uh, experts, um, including Rob Dunham of the Death Penalty Information Center, who, if your listeners want to learn more about this issue, you should definitely check out that site. It's, you know, the sort of one-stop shop. But, but it was it was one of those things that really drove home exactly what you're describing, you know, so much, we were there to talk about the death penalty in the United States. And it was really incredible to hear from attendees who, who kept coming back to this idea that until the United States gives up this practice, um, the, the rest of the world uh, will, will continue to sort of, um, you know, the, the, the United States is this global outlier, you know, and yet we, we, we claim to be sort of leaders when it comes to human rights and democracy and all these things. And, you know, hearing uh, lawyers and activists and other people from, from Asian countries from all over the world saying, you know, the U.S. is the kind of last bastion where we need to uh, address this in order to make global progress was really um, sobering. It was it was powerful to, to see that. Well, I, I kind of want to dive a little bit into um, kind of how Virginia got to to where it is. And but before that, I was wondering and you've done a ton of reporting. You were in, in Terre Haute in Indiana for for the federal executions. And a lot of people, when they see you know, kind of the Trump administration, I don't know that there's an appreciation for the federal level versus the state level and and just kind of how that how that has evolved over time. Could you just kind of elaborate on the difference between, you know, what what Joe Biden can do at the federal level versus what Virginia is doing at the state level? Absolutely. Yeah. So so, you know, to back up, I think I think, first of all, it makes a lot of sense that most Americans aren't all that well informed about the federal death penalty, because for one, um, practically speaking, it's a fraction of the, the uh, you know, condemned population in this country, you know, um, even before this execution spree carried out by Donald Trump, um, there were something like uh, 
60 some odd people on federal death row. Um, and, and, and these cases, uh, and that's actually sort of as large as federal death row has gotten, um, the federal death penalty traditionally going back, you know, decades um, was really supposed to be applied to crimes that were again, you know, sort of major crimes against the state, things like terrorism, things like espionage, um, uh, you know, those kinds of crimes. And it was, it remained true. That remained the case really up until, um, the 19 the late 1980s really and into the 90s where you know the the war on drugs ended up um having the effect on of sort of federalizing um crime in this way so that so that crimes that were traditionally um tried at the state level um and were perfectly you know fine to be prosecuted at the state level things like carjacking things like you know various drug crimes um re uh, resulting in death ended up uh becoming death eligible uh through a series of, of reforms the, the most dramatic of which was the at the 1994 uh crime bill which which uh, there's been a lot of discussion about that and, and biden's role in that and so it's really um not until the sort of mid to late 90s that you see this massive expansion of, of, of the federal death penalty. Something like 60 new crimes overnight after the crime bill passed um, were now death eligible at the federal level. And so when you start to look at some of the cases of the people on death row at the federal level, you know, it's not, uh, for the most part, it's not your it, it, Timothy McVeigh's um, or even, you know, Sarnaya of the, the Boston bomber. Um, he, uh, for a time, was the only um, the only convicted terrorist as, as defined by, by federal law on, on federal death row. Um, and, and his conviction was actually recently vaca vacated. Um, so, or rather, I'm sorry, his sentence was recently vacated. Um, and it's sort of in, in limbo at the, uh, at the moment. We're not quite sure what's going to happen there. Um, but all of which is to say, you know, uh, the, the, the death penalty for the most part in this country exists at the state level. And there's a sort of dwindling number of states that still have it on the books. Um, there are a number of states um, that haven't, you know, despite having, you know, hundreds of people on death row, um, it don't carry out executions. California hasn't carried out an execution in something like 13 years, uh, and yet, and yet, prosecutors continue to seek the death penalty. Um, you know, Virginia uh, has been an active death penalty state, um, and so it's kind of astonishing to see to see uh, where where we are right now with Virginia. But but back to your question about what Biden can do. So so in the wake of this um, pretty astonishing. Uh, killing spree, as I came to call it, um, by Trump, there's been a, a revitalized sort of push to, to um, get Biden not only to, to impose a moratorium on executions, which is essentially what, what existed prior to Trump, um, but to really take bold action. And, 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 well, he could commute death row. A lot of people are calling on him to use his, you know, uh, uh, pardon power to, to commute um, Every single person on death row. Um, this is the last time we saw something like that was was in Illinois. The history I mentioned, where Governor George Ryan commuted everyone on Illinois' death row. Um, so that is something Biden could do tomorrow. He could do it, you know, right away uh, with the stroke of a pen. Is is is. Um, you know, spare those people's lives. Um, and then, he, uh, you know, he could also direct his DOJ. You know, his um, Attorney General nominee is Merrick Garland. Uh, there is a push to call on Merrick Garland to um, have the DOJ. Uh, order the Bureau of Prisons to dismantle, like literally dismantle the execution chamber that has been used um, so much since since July of last year. Um, and then, you know, the federal government is in a position where they can sort of incentivize, provide incentives to states uh, to do away with the death penalty. Um, and so there's actually quite a lot that, that Biden or his administration can do. Um, I think a lot of people were hoping that this was going to be something that he did early on just because of the dramatic nature of these these executions, um, you know, the, especially the lame duck executions carried out by Trump. Um, but we haven't really seen too many hints of, of what's coming, but that's very much a current issue. And, and perhaps by the time this airs, uh, we'll see something more on it. But uh, but yeah, Biden could actually do quite a bit. Liliana, I thought you had a really good paragraph in a, in a piece you wrote. Um, it was right after the insurrection. It was about how the um, the executions in Terre Haute, I think the, the title of it was says more about us than it does about Trump. 
Um, but you said uh, it'd be a mistake to write off the killing spree as yet another grim chapter of the Trump era. The federal executions have been possible thanks to a system that long predates Trump. The death machinery in Terre Haute and the legal infrastructure that su sustains it is a bipartisan creation animated by prosecutors and judges whose power has been uh, derived from Democratic and Republican administrations alike. And while the killing season in Terre Haute may look like an aberration, it's part of a violent tradition that Americans have accepted for years. And I, I thought that was um, really well put. And it applies to Virginia, too. I mean, it's, um, you know, if you look, the last execution in Virginia was in 2017. That was when uh, Terry McAuliffe was the governor, Tim Kaine, Mark Warner, senators now from from Virginia, Democratic senators, um, you know, they oversaw executions in Virginia. And it, I, it, it's a mistake to look at this, um, the history of this as kind of a, a, a Republican versus Democrat issue. And I, I think that that um, you know, that, that applies to the federal level as well as at the state levels as well. No, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, one of the few times I've written about Virginia um, specifically was in the context of the case of, of William Morva, who was the last execution uh, carried out in the state. And and to be honest, that case really haunts me. It's um, it's a case that I think about every single time I'm anywhere near uh, Blacksburg uh, or, or Virginia Tech. And, 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 and the reason for that is that William Morva was so clearly severely mentally ill. And, and, and although he was you know, certainly guilty of two tragic murders of, of law enforcement uh, officers, uh, it, it's a case where you can trace uh, exactly what happened right back to this severe and untreated uh, mental illness, which was almost certainly schizophrenia. And, and, and the details aren't as, as, re, as fresh in my mind, but, but when I looked at that case, when I spoke to people who knew William Morva, who had known him in high school and who kind of described how this kind of sort of quirky guy um, seemed to um, descend into a certain kind of madness uh, into his early twenties, it's really tragic that, um, that that case went the way it did. And, 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 you know, like you said, he was executed in 2017 for all the years that I've been writing about these cases, you know, I've seen a lot of cases where, you know, I had a certain belief that there was a chance that, that, that the execution would be uh, blocked by the governor or stayed. Um, this one, and yet, you know, we get cynical because I've seen so many executions go through uh, with, with meritorious claims being unaddressed. In William Morva's case, I really thought that Governor McAuliffe might step in. I really thought that he might recognize that this was, um, that these murders had to do with, were entirely rooted in, in, in William Morva's mental illness. And, and he didn't, you know, and, and yet now a few years later, uh, Terry McAuliffe uh, claims to be supportive of, of this abolition legislation. And it's like, you know, that could have been you, <laughs> you know, just a few years ago, he could have been leading the charge. And instead he allowed this execution to happen, um, you know, one postscript that's interesting is that the daughter of one of William Morva's victims um, has since said um, over and over again that she opposes the death penalty. And she talks about how, you know, she remembers his execution date and, and sort of it, it, that the date of that execution um, is right alongside the date her father was killed, um, you know, as two sort of uh, uh, formative um, tragic dates for her. And so, um, so, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about that case as Virginia has taken the steps that it has. Um, it, it makes William Morva's execution feel that much more sort of senseless, frankly. It, it's, you know, you bring up, um, I think we've had some really interesting, prominent activists against the death penalty. And um, before we dive into kind of some of the, the Supreme Court cases, um, but I think you also, uh, you wrote about Jerry Givens too, I believe, who, um, was a former um, in Virginia who actually helped carry out executions um, for a long time and then turned into an advocate against the death penalty. He tragically passed away from COVID, I believe, in, in April. Um, but yeah, Virginia ha has had some, uh, you mentioned the daughter of, of um, you know, she's been very outspoken and there's a group here, Virginians for alternatives to the death penalty and has, um, you know, been, been honored by that group. And so, um, yeah, Virginia's certainly, um, well, I, I think let's, let's actually, let's set the stage for, for abolition in Virginia. And so we can walk through some of the numbers um, for the listeners. And so Virginia actually, was the site of the first execution in the colonies in 1608. I believe it was for treason. And Virginia has executed more than 1,300 people um, since its founding, which is more than any state in the history of the US. Now, since 1976, 
Virginia's executed 113 people. That's second only to Texas. And so the date 1976 is significant because in the 70s, there was a nationwide moratorium on the death penalty for a few years because of some some decisions at the Supreme Court level. And in 1972, Furman uh, versus Georgia came before the court. And William Furman uh, killed a man during an attempted home burglary in Savannah, Georgia in 1967. He was sentenced to death. They were able to work his case up to the Supreme Court. And this was the question. Uh, does the imposition of the death penalty constitute cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments? And so the Eighth Amendment being cruel and unusual punishment, the Fourteenth Amendment being equal protection under the law. The court ruled five to four that it was unconstitutional, but it wasn't the act of killing that was unconstitutional. It was the way that states in Georgia, in this case, were going about handing out death sentences. Correct me if I'm wrong on, on that summary, but c- can you elaborate on kind of on what was what was going on there? Yeah. So no, that 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 is. Exactly- Exactly right. That's a very good, succinct history of, of sort of, um, of of Furman. And and so I think one thing that's interesting and, and important to understand about Furman is that, you know, Furman versus Georgia was a ruling that really the groundwork for this ruling had been laid years before um, by by essentially by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And 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 if, if, if people are interested in this history, which I find fascinating, it's a little niche, but there's a, an amazing book called um, A Wild Justice by Evan Mandery. And it, uh, and it literally tells the story of how we got to Furman um, and then how we eventually get to get to Greg. But, but w- when it came to Furman, you know, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was, was for years um, collecting evidence, collecting data that showed uh, what we sort of all know to be true, which is that the death penalty is applied in a racially discriminatory manner. Um, and and for, for years, um, there was a sort of project to, to prove this in various statistical ways. And part of that analysis actually centered on specifically looking at um, rape cases, you know, this is before um, the death penalty uh, for rape was um, deemed unconstitutional. So, so there were all of these cases um, uh, in which black men had been convicted and sentenced to die for uh, raping uh, mostly white women. Um, and this, this is important because it's really like, this is like the direct line between, you know, lynching, um, you know, those kinds of Crimes of racial violence and 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 the death penalty, uh, what we call the modern death penalty. The the legacy of you know of lynching is embedded, especially in the South and in a state like Virginia. And so so this statistical analysis um, was brought you know to various courts and and but the the, the sort of goal was always to show that racism um, was intricately tied to the death penalty as it existed and that this was. Um, unconstitutional, that this was intolerable. Uh, When it comes to Furman um, and what is actually decided in Furman, uh, first of all, there were were a number of different states, a number of different arguments that were a part of Furman, but Furman and and the sort of Georgia ruling is is the sort of one that's most well known. Um, The justices, sort of fell short, uh, you know, of declaring uh, the death penalty racist. This was part of of that ruling, but the ruling really hinged on this idea of arbitrariness, that there was sort of no rhyme or reason uh, that, you know, for why people in a given state or a given county um, end up on death row uh, for, for, you know, for very similar crimes. You know, if you're in one jurisdiction, you might get life or you might get, you know, or, or, or something lesser in another jurisdiction uh, nearby, you, you're, you're sentenced to death. And so, so this idea of arbitrariness, it's, it's kind of like, it's not like the sexiest word, but it's a crucially important to understanding uh, that ruling. Um, and, and, you know, one of the famous, to the extent that there is like sort of a most quotable line out of Furman versus Georgia, um, it's Justice Potter's uh, quote about how, um, you know, the death penalty is cruel and unusual uh, in the same way that getting struck by lightning is cruel and unusual. You know, it's freakishly imposed. It's this kind of, you know, and I think that that captures some of that, some of, you know, w- what was behind that ruling, but but it doesn't really, it doesn't really capture um, some of the, how central um, race and racism um, was to that, to that outcome. Um, but anyway, so in 1972, the justices, oh, all, it's also a plurality. So all nine justices um, wrote, a separate opinion. That's another reason why Furman was actually quite confusing when it came out and continues to be sort of confusing. Um, but but the message it sent the states was um, 
the death penalty laws that we have across this country are, are um, do not pass constitutional muster and, and we're gonna have to figure out what to do with that. You know, the sort of irony is that at that time, the death penalty wasn't really being used all that much. Executions hadn't happened, you know, sort of in any meaningful, consistent way for years. And yet, Firming comes down at a time when the Supreme Court has, you know, a reputation increasingly as kind of an activist court, coddling criminals, you know, giving, expanding the rights of, of criminals. It kind of became part of this larger culture war. Um, and so there's this huge backlash to Furman. Um, and, and, you know, suddenly, you know, almost instantaneously, really, you've got... Um, You've got politicians, you've got attorneys general, you've got people vowing to bring back, um, to, to, to revise the death penalty laws in their respective states uh, so as to, you know, um, uh, be able to preserve this, this you know, long proud American tradition. Um, so between 1972, I, so, so immediately states start um, revising their laws and, and different states try to do this in different ways. Um, the, the two sort of main approaches were, you know, there were states that decided that they were going to uh, you know, address this this arbitrariness, this capriciousness um, by uh, with with um, states that would make certain crimes mandatory, like mandatory death penalty uh, in in certain sort of kinds of first degree murder. Um, so North Carolina did that. I believe Virginia also did that. Um, this sort of mandatory sentencing scheme. We can just make it fair by making it you know equally applied in that way. Um, and then other states, including Georgia, came up with the, the, the system that we sort of have today, which is this idea that, um, so the, the system that we have today uh, is a bifurcated trial where the first phase of the trial, um, you know, is, is the guilt phase. You find the defendant, you know, guilty or not guilty. And then the second phase is, is uh, the sentencing phase. Um, and, and you have to, this sort of system demands that you weigh uh, that jurors um, weigh aggravating factors versus mitigating factors and aggravating factors, you know, um, if you have enough of the aggravating factors that they outweigh the mitigating factors, uh, this is, you know, why then a death penalty or a death sentence is, is appropriate. Um, so, so, you know, these laws were all being passed right out sort of in the, in 1973, uh, 74, 75. Um, and they're kind of broadly speaking, falling into one of these two categories. Um, and so, you know, eventually these, these laws make it back to the US Supreme Court. Um, and the US Supreme Court in 1976 decides that, you know, this Georgia sentencing scheme, this aggravating mitigating factor uh, sort of approach um, is going to make the death penalty fair. And essentially they're like, well, you know, uh, this, this has, um, satisfied what we what we said in Furman, which is that, you know, there needs to be sort of a, a process, there needs to be a way to kind of ensure fairness um, uh, and equity in this system. Um, the, the problem, the problem with that, um, that we have seen really since day one is that um, Greg, that ruling really hinged on this idea that there was going to be kind of a narrowing mechanism, there was going to be a way to differentiate between like the worst of the worst of the worst crimes, and sort of you know, not to be crass, but sort of uh, less horrific murders, you know, uh, more sort of, um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't want to say average murders, but you know what I'm saying, like that the death penalty was supposed to be reserved for this really specific class of horrifying crimes. And that sort of that was what what, you know, would make the system fair. Um, unfortunately, uh, what we see in the in the wake of Greg is that um, take a state like Arizona. So Arizona, I actually interviewed a few years ago, the man who revised um, Arizona's statute in the wake of Furman. And, you know, he told me, he's like, oh, it seemed pretty straightforward. He's like, it seemed like revising the tax code. I sort of looked at, you know, I, I came up with six aggravating factors. These were gonna be the, the, the factors that made, you know, a given murder a death eligible. The problem is that, um, those those laws were revised. They were written. We've got your six mitigating factor, or I'm sorry, aggravating factors. And then politicians decide to expand, <laughs> to build, on, you know, to add more aggravating factors. And so Arizona, you know, went from something like six to something like fourteen. And and some of those aggravating factors end up being sort of meaningless. It's um, it's uh, things like I can't remember. He said something like. Um, such as a crime that's particularly heinous or depraved, or or the, I think there was one that was without legal justification, which like really kind of is all murders, you know. So so we went from this idea that Greg was going to ensure that states narrowed the class of cases that would lead to the death penalty, um, and, and 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 instead, you know, all these states ended up expanding that. We see the same thing in California, um, same thing, and and I believe in Tennessee, where I've also. Um, 
interviewed the the guy who uh, the lawyer who revised Tennessee's um, death penalty law. So, so you know, for a time, I was sort of obsessed with this Greg and with this firming Greg era because you know there's this idea that the death penalty kind of stopped, uh, that there was no one on death row between 1972 and 1976, and that's just not true. You know, states just revised their laws and and. Prosecutors, you know, continued to seek death sentences and, and hoped that the, that they, they would stick, you know, that these laws would be upheld. And in some cases they were, and in other cases um, they weren't. I, I, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't recommend another book that I think is really fascinating um, that, that looks at this history too. It's um, this journalist named Joan Cheever um, wrote a book called Back from the Dead in which she, she literally looked up like every person who had been on death row at the time that Furman came down um, and tried to figure out, you know, what had happened to them. Uh, and, and it's kind of this extraordinary journalistic journey. Um, but, but one of the main takeaways is that, you know, for all the fear mongering and all the backlash to Furman and all this idea that, uh, you know, there's gonna be blood in the streets because these guys were gonna eventually get out out, you know, those that did, you know, for the most part, didn't commit new murders, you know, it kind of, it kind of exposed the lie uh, that the death penalty is, is, is necessary in order to contain these incredibly dangerous people. Um, so just wanted to mention that. It, it's so, talking about equity regarding the state's ability to kill just feels so, there's something that just feels really wrong about that. You know, I mean, I mean, when, when you're saying, oh, we need to apply the state's ability or the state's right to kill, you know, equitably. I mean, that, that when you're having that conversation, I just don't know how people can't take a take a step back and say, you know, what, what, what are we doing here? Yeah, well, I've you know, I've had those moments. I will tell you the times that I've had those kinds of moments. Um, every time I've gone to the Supreme Court, um, I've gone a couple times. I can't remember now the first time, but you know, I remember going to the oral arguments in Glossip versus Gross, which I maintain is one of the worst decisions in, in recent death penalty history. It's just, um, it's a nightmare decision in a, in a number of ways, but this is a, a decision about an eighth amendment challenge to lethal injection. Um, and, and, and when you hear the justices in this kind of <laughs> lofty space, you know, uh, talk about the kind of mechanisms of these drugs and whether or not, you know, to what degree, you know, there should be any pain or lesser pain or how are these drugs are working. It really drives home what you're talking about this. It's like, it's like that equity thing. It's like, really? Like, this is what we're doing? Like, everything about that court, you know, feels very kind of prestigious and important. And it kind of is designed to imbue the sense of importance and legitimacy. And yet those discussions are the moments where I, I, I sit back and I'm like, this it's very good sobering reminder of like this is this is a court that has upheld some of the most egregious forms of of, of state violence of, of you know sort of some of our ugliest uh, moments as a country uh so i appreciate you you talking about that well you know and i i think something that is relevant in, in virginia too you mentioned kind of the 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 central issue of race here that, that just cannot be escaped and, and i think there's um a story here that, that actually came out in December where it has to do with the Martinsville seven and um, Liliana, you might be familiar with this, but in, in 1951, there were seven black men who were executed around the crime of, of raping a, a white woman. And not all of them actually participated in the, in the non-consensual act. There was no, there was no question that, that of, of guilt here. But actually, the family members, the descendants of some of those um, of some of those uh, the people who were executed, and it's the the single largest execution for a crime committed against a single um, victim in the state's history. They're asking Governor Northam, the family members, for a, a posthumous pardon because you know you mentioned rape, and, and in Virginia before the Civil War, it was in the state's code that only black people could be executed for rape. It was actually in the law, in the state's law. From 1908 until 1951, when these seven men were, were executed, there were 45 people executed for rape. All 45 were black. And so it was like from 1908 to 1951. And that was like 1908 was when they started keeping track. And so, um, you know, j just how blatant 
you know, race, you know, still in, in the wake of 1976, I mean, race is still a, a factor. And in every study that you'll, or almost, I think it's like 98% or something like that of studies that look at it. I mean, it's race still plays a really big factor in the application of, of the death penalty. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, one of the, uh, some of the evidence that's, that is most recent and most compelling uh, on, on race is, is, you know, to do with the race of the victim, you know, that, 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 overwhelmingly that the numbers show that, you know, the death penalty is applied in cases uh, that show, uh, you know, where the victim was white. Uh, and it shows like a real sort of, if these are the worst of the worst crimes, right? Uh, and the vast majority of those are, are involving white victims. It's like, whose lives are we really valuing here? Um, so, so yeah, I, I, you know, I wrote a piece some years ago um, that really that really gets into this legacy of, of lynching and, and, and with regard to rape cases. And it's really, really fascinating because especially in the South, um, when it came to the debate, there was a debate around lynching, you know, uh, and, and, and sort of when, if ever it was appropriate, you know, you definitely, you literally had Southern governors, uh, you know, for instance, in California, in, in, I'm sorry, in, in South Carolina saying things like, I'm opposed to lynch law for anything but rape, you know, uh, that, 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 that there's got to be a, you know, an instance where, where, where lynching is, is necessary in order to kind of, you know, basically keep black men in line um, and, and the governors of Georgia and Virginia, you know, uh, were similarly sort of uh, said sort of similar things. And, and what's really eerie is that some of the justifications that were um, given at the time in defense of lynchings um, are the very same justifications that are given, you know, when it comes to the death penalty now. And, and so and, 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 and the sort of role of, 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 you know, sort of issues of sexual violence, race, all of that is so central to that to that history. So, um, um, uh, you know, I, I'm less familiar with with some of the, the the Virginia history, but but it's really what you're describing is um, is absolutely in keeping with what existed in the South, you know, for for generations. Um, so uh, I can't remember what <laughs> I can't remember what, why I started talking about that, but but yeah, what you were talking about uh, it's it brings to mind this this um this piece that I wrote really really um, looking closely at that that lynching legacy. Um, um, I think we could learn a lot. People could learn a lot about the sort of death penalty's origins um, by studying that more closely. Well, before we kind of talk a little bit about Virginia and kind of, you know, where Virginia is in, in abolishing the death penalty and what that means, I'm, I'm curious, how have you seen views on, on the death penalty evolve over, over the time that, that you've been covering it? And, and I, I'm curious, you know, between this kind of cruel and unusual um, you know, um, I guess version of opposition to the death penalty and, and the, the, the equity piece of the opposition to the death penalty. What do you think has been kind of more, um, successful at, at persuasion? Um, so I think that, you know, the innocence movement, I think the, the, the advent of, of DNA and exonerations, you know, I think that, uh, that has had, I think that has woken people up to the fact that innocent people are sentenced to death in this country. And we have certainly um, executed um, an untold number of innocent people. Um, I think that that's one, one piece of it, you know, the execution of Cameron Todd Willingham and, and for a crime that, you know, he did not commit, um, I think was a, a bit of a flashpoint, although looking back on it, not as much as I, I sort of thought it would be at the time. Um, but I certainly think that, you know, organizations like the Innocence Project and the cases, the exonerations that are in the news um, just constantly, I think, I think that's had, um, that's had an impact on, on public opinion. I think um, for better or worse, the rise of life without parole sentences as an alternative to the death penalty has helped to bring people along on this um, issue. I think the problem with that is that life without parole replicates a lot of the sort of equity issues that um, we see with the death penalty. That's a discussion for another day, but, um, but when, when it comes to states, the sort of uh, the states that have abolished the death penalty um, in, in over the past decade or so or more, um, that strategy has included um, sort of um, putting LWAP up as the kind of default alternative to the death penalty. So public opinion really changes when you give people uh, an alternative and you say, well, between the death penalty and life without parole, um, because otherwise, you know, public opinion is sort of always sort of steadily, there's always, you know, a certain kind of support for the death penalty, which I think remains an abstract issue among many people, you know, it kind of is always hovering there, like there's always going to be people who support it, um, in large part because they don't know how it actually works or, or what, you know, or doesn't work. Um, 
So, so, but, but in my time covering this issue, uh, I think there's a much better awareness around wrongful convictions. Um, you know, I think there's increasing, although not enough skepticism of, of, uh, you know, certain areas of forensic science, um, you know, the, the fallibility of law enforcement, of forensic experts, all of those things. Um, I also think, you know, although they feel a little disconnected, the kind of, um, movements for racial justice, um, Black Lives Matter. I think that that kind of, it always seems to exist sort of separately from the death penalty, that this sort of movement against the death penalty is is, um, is somewhat distinct from those movements. And yet I think that people do understand that this is the kind of tip of the spear, you know, of this of this system of, of state sanctioned violence. And, um, and uh, to the extent that we saw last year, you know, um, this upheaval around um, the killing of George Floyd, I think people understand that, that the death penalty is something of a relic. Um, we, we certainly saw that when it came to the federal executions, you know, the, the real, the case that really woke people up, I think was the case of Brandon Bernard, who was, um, you know, a black man sentenced to death despite, um, you know, being a lot less culpable than the person who actually was the trigger man in that in that case. So, um, so all of those things, I think, um, have contributed to sort of public opinion, uh, sort of public awareness, uh, a move away from the death penalty. Um, and then also, I mean, the fact is, you know, the death penalty is seriously on the decline. There's fewer death penalty, uh, death sentences being uh, handed down every year. There's fewer executions. Um, the quality of death penalty representation has has um, gone up considerably in the past few decades. Um, it used to be pretty abysmal. So yeah, there's just, uh, and fewer and fewer states are, are really, um, you know, kind of active uh, death penalty states uh, in terms of executions. So yeah. Um, you know, I did want to uh, go back to one decision that I think is really important, if you don't mind, uh, to understanding the kind of the issues of uh, equity and race. Um, you know, there have been a number of challenges historically to the death penalty um, uh, from an Eighth Amendment standpoint, from a 14th Amendment standpoint. And, and one of the ones that I think is like really uh, just a, a, a black eye <laughs> for, for, you know, it, when it comes to this country's history and, and the sort of so-called justice system is, is, a, is a ruling called McCleskey versus Kemp. Uh, and, and McCleskey versus Kemp was a ruling in 1987, um, which, which again tried to take the statistical studies that I was kind of um, alluding to before, or, you know, or newer statistical studies showing evidence of, of racial disparities um, in, in death penalty cases. Uh, there was all of this research that it had been done, um, you know, uh, looking at, at, at the role of race and, and these disparate outcomes. And in McCleskey versus Kemp, you know, despite being shown evidence, like really solid, um, evidence showing the racism at the heart of the death penalty system, you know, the Supreme Court decided that that wasn't enough, you know, that this, this, this was, um, this wasn't, this wasn't for them to decide that, that, you know, it's better for that evidence to be reviewed by legislators, um, and essentially kind of foreclosed on the possibility of bringing challenges not only to the death penalty, but to all kinds of areas of the criminal justice system um, on the basis of sort of disparate impact, on the basis that it was racist. And this was um, a really shameful uh, decision because it really has hamstrung um, lawyers um, and defendants from, from showing evidence of racism, uh, systemic racism throughout this system. So in, in this decision, and it was a five, a five to four decision, uh, the court said that discrimination in the capital, uh, criminal justice system was inevitable, uh, inevitable in the words of Justice Lewis Powell. Um, and, and, and the court held that a sentence was not unconstitutional unless a defendant could prove that the racial bias had been intentional. Um, and so, so, you know, the, the, uh, Legal Defense Fund, uh, the same like Legal Defense Fund that was so instrumental in bringing Furman and um, you know and arguing Greg, uh, described this as a crippling burden of proof. You know that's it's 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 like you need a smoking gun. You need to prove that there was kind of racist intent, um, and that 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 has been really devastating. You know Anthony Amsterdam, who who argued Furman before the court, called it the Dred Scott of our time. So you know I think that Furman and Greg are really important, but if there is like a single case that I think is important for people to understand that, that kind of helped shape the system and preserve it and insulate it from, from challenge. I, it, it's really um, McCleskey versus Kemp is critical. 
Well, so Virginia right now is on the precipice of, of officially uh, abolishing the death penalty. The House of Delegates and the Senate have recently uh, voted to to pass their bills, uh, their respective bills, out of their their chambers. And um, actually, in the in the House of Delegates, there were three Republicans, I believe, who voted for it. The rest were Democrats. It was fifty seven to forty three, I believe. In the Senate, there were um, no Republicans that voted for it. Although one of the co patrons on the bill was a Republican. His name is Senator Bill Stanley, and he actually has been an outspoken critic of the death penalty. But they didn't include some amendments about some mandatory sentencing that he wanted. And so he actually abstained, but he's written, you know, op-eds about it. And, and I, I think to his credit, he actually was named at kind of like the, the advocate of the year for Virginians for alternatives to the death penalty, because he was the first Republican to come out publicly against it, actually gave four speeches about it, but he connected it to his belief in the sanctity of life. And then his whole thing, <laughs> do you trust the government to get it right when it comes to this? And so that, that was basically his argument, which, you know, I, I you know, again, I, I wish you wouldn't have abstained on, on the vote, but um, but still, I mean, just kind of having that leadership. And so just given given Virginia's history, how big of a deal do you think this is? Oh, it's a huge deal. I mean, it's a huge deal. This is the first time. I mean, it's not only the state that has, you know, has it leads the country in the number of executions. I mean, it would be the first Southern state. Uh, I live in Tennessee and Tennessee is a state where, you know, after a long pause, uh, we started executing people again a few years ago. And out of, I believe, seven executions that have taken place uh, since executions restarted, uh, five of them have, have been carried out uh, using the electric chair. And that's because of, of issues regarding lethal injection, which I won't get into, but, but it is so, it's like we're seeing Tennessee take this kind of lurch backwards, you know, uh, reviving this this uh, this punishment in a way that's been sort of surreal. Um, and so, to see Virginia, um, which I really didn't predict um, just a few years ago, you know, I, it would have been unthinkable to me that Virginia would be where it is right now. Uh, to see them, you know, this close uh, and you know, to to abolishing is, I'm sort of still. Um, I'm sort of still reeling from just that fact alone. Uh, I, I think uh, as a, yeah, as a Southern state, as a state, um, I also think actually it's very important that it comes directly following this execution spree at the federal level. I think it's a real rebuke of, of that. You know, I think that that's, that's really powerful. Um, you know, and you mentioned Jerry Gibbons before. It's, it's, it's a shame that he is not alive to see this because, you know, I met Jerry Gibbons for the first time in Terre Haute. Um, Indiana because he was there uh, to tell his story to anyone who would listen. Uh, his story, you know, he was Virginia's executioner. He carried out 62 executions. Um, and, and his story is incredibly powerful because essentially, you know, he, he came to, well, first of all, he came very close to executing an innocent person. Um, and he talked about how that uh, was, was so disturbing to him and how it haunted him. Uh, but he also, you know, uh, talked in his, uh, his speeches about the, the impact it ha had on him, you know, how, how harmful it was, uh, how he couldn't talk to his family about it, you know, the effect that it had on him to carry out those executions. Um, and, you know, Jerry Givens, there are very few people uh, like him uh, and he was unassailable, you know, he could reach conservatives, he could reach <laughs> some of the most right-wing um, audience members, uh, because if anyone knew uh, the kind of human cost of the death penalty, it was it was him. So, you know, it's thanks in, in large part to his advocacy. Uh, I'm certain that that, um, that 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 the needle was sort of moved in this direction over time in Virginia. I mean, who would have thought Virginia is going to do it before California or, you know, or Oregon, I, I think, still has the as the. And, and so um, do, do you think will, will there be any ripple effects that, that come of this? I hope so. I really do. Um, it's it's hard to say, you know, again, being in Tennessee, I've watched as, you know, we have just a really right wing legislature and to see the way in which a few years ago, Tennessee uh, lawmakers tried to introduce what's really a very reasonable and almost symbolic reform um, when it comes to sort of real impact, which is to, this is legislation that's been introduced in other states too, to um, 
to try to address the problem of severe mental illness, to prevent people with severe mental illness from being uh, uh, sentenced to death or, or even tried in, a, in this kind of capital case. And, and the amount of kind of fear mongering and the reactionary kind of response uh, to, to that very mild reform really made me feel um, a lot less hope that something as big as abolition would be possible in a state like Tennessee, which is active, you know, an active death penalty state. But I do think, I think you're right to kind of point to California and it's like, really California, you're gonna let Virginia do this first? Like that should be embarrassing, you know, uh, that, that you can't get this done. And so I hope, um, I hope it'll have a ripple effect. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure yet, um, we'll see. Well, Liliana, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Before we let you go, we um, ask all of our guests, this is the last question for all of our guests, and given we're a school of leadership and public policy. So the question is, what's a leadership lesson you've learned that you wish someone would have shared with you as either an undergraduate or graduate student? <laughs> it's, you know, it's a good question. I when I think back to my college days, I'm like, was I aspiring to leadership? I think I was aspiring to uh, get a job that would allow me to stay in New York and have an apartment and a dog and write for a living. Like that was kind of, you know, that, that my major ambition. And so, but when I think about, when I think about that question, I mean, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about before with the Supreme Court being this kind of institution um, that is, it's, it's, it's the, the power of prestige, you know, really comes through. Like, I, I think that I wish somebody would have told me not to be, not to be captured by the power of prestige or that sort of academic titles or, you know, the kind of importance of institutions that we, we are sort of, um, we are told to see as legitimate sort of authorities, you know, and, 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 and when, when, when sometimes they shouldn't be considered legitimate authorities, you know, and I think going to the Supreme Court, I remember standing in line or, 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 or getting to, as, as a reporter, getting to have access to the Supreme Court in a way that ordinary people who had to stand in line, you know, waiting to get in. And this idea that it's like, if you have access to this, if you have access to this, uh, you know, powerful institution in a way that other people do that must make you important too you know and and you can kind of fall prey to this idea that like of, of prestige and access and um and, and sort of think that that makes the decisions and the policies coming out of these institutions that that that, that carries any kind of uh moral weight or or legitimacy and a lot of the times that's not the case you know you have to maintain a certain amount of skepticism uh and, and so i think i think i would say you know uh, don't aspire to to sort of you know to to those prestigious institutions or to those uh, to having access to to um, you know institutions of power. Um, keep your wits about you. A lot of the times, like the sort of truth tellers in the places where you're going to find um, the most uh, transformative and important um, movements and leaders uh, are, are not in those places. Uh, they're outside. Thank you so much to Liliana Segura for joining us, and thank you to Ben Feldman and Ben Teese for helping out with production. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.